everyone and welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Our service this morning will be led by our Minister Katrina and as always, everything we need to follow the service is both on our printed order service and on the screen. Could the managers please note that there will be a short managers meeting at the end of this service. If you could just get to us. Thank you and good morning from me as well. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. And we continue in the Psalms for our opening hymn. A paraphrase, how pleased and blessed was I to hear the people cry, come, let us seek our God today. If you're able, you're invited to stand as we sing.
so let us come to God in prayer. And of course, as usual, we will gather all our prayers together in the Lord's Prayer at the end of the guided prayer. So let us pray together. God, who meets us in Jesus and in each other, it is good to be together again to worship you. Since we last met, all sorts of things have been going on. Some happy and some sad, but mostly just very ordinary. Since we last met, some of us have been very busy, while for others time has maybe moved slowly. And for many, it's just been a normal kind of a week. However our weeks have been, and however we feel, we are united in our desire to be here, to draw closer to you, listening for a word to encourage, challenge or inspire us as we get ready for the challenges the week ahead will bring. First of all, we want to bring you our thanks. To call to mind things that have been good about the week now ending. Things that made us laugh. Things that were fun. Moments when we felt we achieved something good or were something good. We acknowledge also that there have been moments we are less proud of. Perhaps we were selfish, greedy, rude or ungrateful. Maybe there are things we wish hadn't happened for which we are responsible. Emotions or attitudes that are bad for our own well-being, never mind those of others. In the quiet of our hearts, we lay before you our regrets, our apologies, our need to forgive others, and our need to be forgiven. We know that you love us, that you promise to forgive us, and that you give us endless fresh starts. We also know that you delight to watch us become more like Jesus as we learn from him how to love and to be loved, just as you love us. Please assure us again of the comfort and help of your Holy Spirit to enable us to live the lives that we are called to live, becoming more truly the people you made us to be. Loved, forgiven, restored and refreshed, we join our voices with those of countless others as we pray together, saying, 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. <coughs> So this is the third week of three when we are looking together a little bit about Jesus' 
growing up. And I'm going to start off by showing you some photographs of buildings in Prague that I visited last year. So those who have been to Prague may recognise some of those, or either of those, or you may not. Lena, would you like to enlighten us? That's okay. Okay, so the one on our left is the Staranova synagogue, the new old synagogue, and the one on the right is a synagogue at the gate to the Jewish cemetery, and I can't, I think, is that the old synagogue, I think? Um, I must admit, I've forgotten the name of it, and I don't label my photographs. So these are synagogues in Prague, in Czechia, the Czech Republic. And here's a photograph on the inside of, I think it's a Spanish synagogue, I may be wrong. Um, but what do you think, is, what, do, what sort of thoughts come to your mind when you see that photograph? Does it look familiar? Does it look unfamiliar? He's going. <laughs> I think one of the things that struck me is it's actually very similar, isn't it, to a church? And it's what also struck me, partly because I know a little about Judaism, <coughs> being partly Jewish, um, is that the glass and the decoration are abstract. They are not flowers, they are not trees, they're not plants, they're geometric designs. And if you were to look at the stained glass or the or decorative glass in a Baptist church or a Baptist chapel of around the same age as this, you would find the same. Um, our church our, across the road has some lovely coloured glass, but no patterns, no flowers, no trees, because in Judaism and for a long time within Baptist and other Protestant non-conformist circles, there was the idea that we shouldn't be creating nature inside places of worship. And that's just some more detail of the glass, which I think is really beautiful, really simple, lovely colours. And the one on the right, I'm actually looking down from the balcony towards, which is where the women would normally sit, towards the front, the ark, where the scrolls are kept. If you can see, oops, wrong one, sorry, um, that one. Just here, um, this is where you've got the Ten Commandments. And down here is where they actually keep the scrolls of the Torah. And they still use scrolls to this day. Uh, you can't see it on there, but there's a red light that hangs in front of the ark. So that in the dark, you can find it. And that also rang bells with me. Because if you went into a Roman Catholic church, you would find a red light by what they call the tabernacle, which is where they keep the reserved sacrament, the blessed communion bread. So interesting how Christianity and Judaism have a lot of similarity in our buildings. This is an, another view of, of a of, um, part of the ark, very, very beautiful. Does anybody know what the thing on the right is? It is Wendy, yes, it's a wedding canopy. So in Judaism, you would get married underneath a canopy and this is it, and it's got um, Hebrew writing around the top. So the couple who are going to be married would be standing under the canopy. 
This is um, a plan of a synagogue, and this has not changed dramatically since Jesus was alive. When Jesus was a boy, he would have gone to the synagogue, and it would have been very similar to this. So you can see up here is the Ark for the Torah scrolls, and just beside that is the cantor's lectern. So that's the person who reads the, the scriptures for them or sings the scriptures for them. Around the sides, you've got the women's gallery, but that's actually upstairs. And if you notice down the bottom, there is a separate staircase for the women to take so that they can get up there. And in the middle is effectively um, a very fancy lectern area. And this is where the Torah scroll is read from. And this was very similar to what Jesus would have experienced when he went to synagogue. Not as elaborate as our modern ones, because all the windows and things wouldn't have been there. But the basic style would have been similar. And in the service to this very day, the scrolls are taken from the ark and they are paraded all the way around for everybody to see them before they're brought here to be read. And typically, ten people traditionally men, but now in a lot of synagogues it can be men and women, will each read a portion from the appointed scroll. I think there must be some kind of bookmark that they use so they can get to the right place. But they read it and then it's taken back to the ark, put away, and then the, the sermon is delivered. And in fact, the style of a Jewish service to this day is very similar to our style of service you start off with some, some poems or psalms and singing. You have some prayers. They will recite the Shema prayer. They will recite the 18 blessings, although there are 19 now since some um, events of the 1940s. Kind of ironic that we're on Holocaust Memorial Day um, as we talk about this. So the 19th blessing is giving thanks to God that they are still here today after the events in Nazi Germany. So this is a synagogue very similar to what Jesus would have gone to and still in use today. Anyone know what this is a picture of? It's not a real picture because it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it is supposed to be the original temple, Wendy, exactly right. No, 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 you're fine. Yeah, this is um, Solomon's temple. Uh, and this is a map of Herod's temple, a plan of Herod's temple. Very grand very elaborate and you've got the steps up to it and it's one of these things of a so far and no further so I'm actually going to go on to the next one which will give us a, a sort of plan view of it around the edge is where the Gentiles can go the ordinary people people like us who are not Jewish well people like you who are not Jewish anyway um, can only go this far God-fearing Greeks, God-fearing um, Romans, God-fearing Germans, had they been there, could go this far. If you were a woman and Jewish, so I would be able to do this just about, you could go this far and no further. This is the women's court, and it was here where people made their offerings and where there were, were places for the lepers to get a bath to be cleansed. There was a place that the Nazarites would go to uh, redeem their vows and so on just in kind of here and here is where the men could go so I wouldn't be allowed in here but any men who were Jewish would be this is how far Jesus could go this far and no further and then there is the priest's courtyard 
going into the, the temple, the Holy of Holies. So it's a very different thing. This was the, 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 uh, the temple where Jesus would sometimes go to worship. But most of his time, Jesus worked in a, worshipped in a synagogue, and a synagogue would be very similar to us. And if we were to go into a synagogue today, some of them still have got the gallery where the women go. Some of them would have the men on one side and the women on the other, and there would be no mixing, and the children would probably sit with the women. But increasingly, in some branches of Judaism, just like us, people mix together and sit where they like. So just as we come to school, to school, to church, to worship God, so Jesus went to church to worship God, to, to synagogue to worship God. And so we're going to sing a song about that now. Thanks, Leo. The first reading is from Mark in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized with him by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist 
and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So in the weeks since we celebrated Jesus' birth at Christmas, we have used quite a few historical sources, extra-biblical sources, to imagine a little bit of what life might have been like for Jesus in the scriptural silence of his childhood. We, we know, I've said it several times, we don't know what happened in those years, but we've imagining it. A couple of weeks ago, our thoughts were centred on the ritual of circumcision, and the redemption of the firstborn, along with the reintegration into the worshipping community of his mother as she was cleansed following childbirth. 
And we use that to ask ourselves some questions about inclusion and exclusion, about boundaries and about barriers. Last week, we met Jesus several years later on the brink of adulthood. He was around about 12 years of age when he would have completed his formal education and have been apprenticed to his father. He would be expected to take adult responsibilities in the home, in the synagogue and in the wider community. And we use that as a, a way to think about what that might mean for us as a church as we support and encourage our own younger folk, especially those in that age bracket between 12 and 30, as they negotiate what it means to be an adult in 21st century Western society and all the complexities that that brings us. Today, we move on again, following another silence when we meet Jesus at the age of around about 30. We are told by Luke that after the events at the temple, he went home with Mary and Joseph and was obedient to them, and that he grew in stature with people and with God. But we know nothing of what that meant, because the next time we meet him, he's around about 30 years old, and he makes the choices that will change the direction of his life completely and not only the direction of his life, but the direction of world history. As is the way, sometimes you get a really good thought after you've done something, and it struck me as I was reading and reflecting that we have this gap of 12 to 30 in Jesus' life, which is exactly the period we noted last year as the transition nowadays from childhood to completely autonomous adulthood for most people. There really is nothing new under the sun, is there? This whole same thing seems to have happened for Jesus in some sense. So what did happen in those silent years? Well, we have no idea. We can only begin to imagine. The wide, widely held traditions, of course, are that Jesus stayed at home, that he worked as a carpenter, although... The word carpenter in that culture was sometimes a euphemism for a teacher. So he could have been a teacher or he could have been a carpenter or maybe a bit of both. Traditionally, we believe that Joseph had died in the meantime and that Jesus is unmarried and that he assumes the role of protector for his mother and his siblings. We don't know for certain any of that because nobody has written it down. Nobody has passed it on. It doesn't seem to have been sufficiently important to the people who wrote down the stories that were to become the Gospels to tell us these things. In fact, it's only in one out of the four Gospels, that of Luke, the Gentile physician, that we have any mention of Jesus' age whatsoever up to this point. And indeed, there is only one other mention of Jesus' age at all, which is in the Gospel of John, fairly early on when he's had a run-in with the religious authorities after he's healed a blind man. And they say, but you're not even 50 yet. So we know he was somewhere between around about 30 and around about 50 while his, he exercised his ministry. Why 50? Well, that was the age at which a lot of men would stop their active working life and would be regarded within community as elders, as men of wisdom to whom you should listen. So Jesus is a young man 
We know that Jesus' entire ministry is spent as a young man, not as somebody who would be necessarily considered wise and important. Now, I want to get you to do some work today because I'm, one, I'm a bit mean, and two, I've had an incredibly busy week. So I just want to do a little exercise and you can do it just in your head or if it's helpful for you to note things down, um, you've got a piece of paper and a pen. It's just for you. You are not going to be asked to share it with anybody else whatsoever. If you are more than around about 30 years old, which is most of us, let's be honest, I want you to try and think back to when you were in that age bracket between 12 and 30. And what happened in there? What was going on for you? What are the things that come to mind? And it doesn't matter if they're big things or small things. If they pop into your head, then that means they were significant for you. If you are around about 30 or under 30, and we have quite a few under 30s as well, which is fabulous, just go from when you were about 12 up to now and just think, what are the things that have happened in your life that for you in some way have been significant. So it's just a little reminder there. Think about your life between the ages of 12 and 30 or up until now. What has happened for you that's significant? And if you are a lot older than 30, then maybe focus on around about that age of 30. What was going on in your life around that time? I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to do that. Okay, if you've written that down, you've got it to think about later if it's in your head. Just try and park those thoughts where you might be able to pull them back as we go along. I've deliberately chosen to move out of Luke's Gospel for this story and go instead to the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't give us a child Jesus. Mark introduces us to the grown-up Jesus at the time of his baptism. And the gospel opens with the words, this is the beginning of the good news, or this is the beginning of the gospel. He sets the scene and he tells us about the prophet John, whose role it was to prepare the way, to help people to get ready for the one who is to come. There are some scholars who think that prior to his baptism, Jesus may have been amongst the followers of John amongst the disciples of John, the people who travelled around with him and listened to his prophecies and reflected on them. We don't know that, but that's what some people think. Some people think he might have heard this and begun to realise that the prophecies related to himself. This man is talking about me, I think. This speaks to me in in a very special way. Others think actually it's almost the other way round that there was a significant moment when John realised that the prophecies related to his younger cousin. But whatever the reality is, which we can never prove one way or the other, there is this really significant moment when Jesus comes and joins the line of people who are coming up to John to be baptised. Mark's gospel has no conversation between the two men. Mark's gospel doesn't have John saying, oh, no, 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 this isn't the right way round. Neither does he have Jesus saying, well, let's just do this for now. 
We're just told that it happens. That Jesus comes to John and is baptised. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, he looks heavenward and sees the heavens open. And he alone, according to Mark, hears a voice. You are my son, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And it is Jesus who sees the spirit descend as a dove. It is a really intimate moment between Jesus and God. Something that must have stuck in his mind. Something he must have shared with other people. Because otherwise, how would it come to be written down? Luke follows Mark and has this as God speaking purely to Jesus. Matthew the Jewish writer, interestingly, has a little bit of a theological twist on it. And he actually has people hearing God speaking and saying, this is my son. And I guess there's probably truth in both. Whether Matthew has played a little bit fast and loose with a story he's told and pretended that everybody heard it, doesn't really matter. This private personal moment between Jesus and God actually has significance globally, universally. Jesus is just like us. Jesus is completely human. And Jesus has this moment of recognising that he can have and does have this incredibly personal, close relationship with God. But also Jesus is not like us. Rather, he is one for us. He is the son of God to whom we should listen and from whom we can learn. As I was reflecting on the story this week, I called to mind my own baptism. Um, I was in my early 30s. Just how scriptural was I, huh? Just by luck, trust me. But in that split second, when I was underneath the water, I felt that I left the space-time continuum and entered that eternal now of God. I was conscious of God in a way that I never have been before or since. And an incredible peace and joy overwhelmed me, really. And I would have been quite happy, frankly, if the minister had dropped me and... That had been that. I would have been perfectly happy to just go off and be with God in that moment for all eternity. But of course, that's not what happened. I came back up out of the water, back into the reality of life in all its fullness and the challenges and questions that come of being a disciple of Jesus, trying to follow in his footsteps. Maybe some of you have moments that are similar to that, not necessarily at your baptism, but other times in your life, perhaps a sense of conversion or confirmation, or even just out of the blue, when somewhere deep inside you knew with no shadow of doubt that you are God's child whom God loves. 
And if that's not your experience, then that doesn't matter. That doesn't make you second rate or different. Maybe you will one day feel like that. And maybe you won't. But it doesn't alter the fact that it's true. You are God's child. And you are beloved of God. Accepted. Cherished. For Jesus, though, his baptism is a turning point. He goes off on his own to reflect, to fast and to pray, working out what it will mean for him to live out this thing that has just happened to him. He has this assurance that he is the child of God, the son of God, that he is loved. But what does that mean? So he goes off on his own, traditionally for 40 days, which is biblical symbolism for a long time. And he has a whole lot of temptations. Those are recorded and probably a whole lot more. So just for a moment, when you go back to your own story, has there been a moment like that? A time when something happened that had the potential to change the course of your life. How did you work that out? What did you do to process it? doesn't mean to say that you went off for 40 days but how did you process that it doesn't have to be a big thing and it doesn't have to be a good thing it could be a troubling thing a difficult thing it could be something quite small but just think about it how did you process it what thoughts went through your mind what were the temptations or the challenges. If I do this, then. But if I don't do it, then. So just literally about a minute, just to ponder that. Those who know my story will probably know that I, I will tell you that I wrestled with God for 10 years about whether or not to be baptised, partly because I had been baptised as an infant and I needed to work through what that meant to then be baptised as a believer, but largely because I was scared of water. And then just a few weeks later, I had the most overwhelming sense of God calling me to ordained Baptist ministry. And I decided there was no point in arguing with God for another 10 years. I better just get on and do it. Sometimes the processing takes a long time. And sometimes the processing is quite quick. And to some degree, this is what Jesus had to do. He had to go and work out what it meant. He had spent his whole life up to the age of around about 30 in Nazareth, Nazareth with his family. Now he was going to begin an itinerant ministry. He was going to become a preacher, a teacher, a wonder worker, a person who knew himself to be the son of God and that he had a destiny to fulfill. 
The reason that we are here today is because each, some, each and every one of us, in some measure, is attracted by the story of Jesus. And we are convinced, to some degree at least, that in that story, we find things to help us live our lives to be the best that they can be. That if we decide to follow Jesus, this will impact our lives and it will have consequences. But what are those consequences? That's why this morning I chose to also remind us of the words at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Words that are attributed to Jesus. Now, I use the word attributed carefully, not because I don't think that they carry truth, because I absolutely am convinced that they do, but because the clear Trinitarian reference of baptism in the, to the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit is almost certainly a later addition. This would have been something that began to be practised in the church and so they, as they told the story, they kind of mixed it together and had Jesus saying it. If you look in Acts, if you look in the letters, you find people baptised into the name of Jesus, full stop. The Trinitarian formula is a little bit later historically. But even so, this is inspired writing from the stories of Jesus that has truth to share with us. And Jesus' disciples' here instructions are really clear. You can't just stay here on the mountain. You can't just stand here with me any more than I could stay in the eternal now of God's presence in that moment of my baptism. You have to go back down out into the world. And I want you to go to people everywhere. And I want you to teach them the things I've taught you. And I want you to baptise them into the name of the living God. The living God whom we understand as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. So here is the mandate then for those who want to follow Jesus to be baptised. Baptism is a discipleship ritual, a symbol of identifying with Jesus. The Greek word from which we get baptised, the verb baptizio, means to dip or to dye, D-Y-E. So you were baptised fabric. If you had some fabric that was just unbleached and you wanted it to be green, you would baptise it in a vat of green dye. And that's quite um, an interesting symbol to think of if we talk about ourselves being baptised. <laughs> Personally, I have a theology of baptism that is purely a discipleship rite. I don't think it has a salvific effect. I don't think that being dunked in some water saves you of itself. I think it's a symbol that we do. But some traditions and some people think otherwise, and that's totally fine. But there is something hugely significant about this symbol of being clothed in Christ, if you like. We wash away the grime in the water and we kind of are coloured alive. We become bright. If you could be a, a beautiful colour, imagine that that's kind of what happens, or a pattern or whatever. If that's what happens, is that we are transformed somehow as followers of Jesus and following that ritual. 
But the reality is, of course, you have to get out of the water, you have to get dry, and you have to get on with life. And life is messy, and life is dirty, and things go wrong, and there are challenges. And actually, we don't stay bright and shiny and beautiful all the time. But actually, we know that God is with us, that Christ is with us to the end of the age. That's one of his promises. I will be with you always, he says, till the very end of the age. And so we reach a moment where we choose to follow Jesus, to carry on his work, to tell the stories of Jesus. That's why we meet together, to allow the teaching of Jesus to shape our lives the way we treat the people we meet out in the streets, the attitudes we take in our work and our learning. We are grown up, if you like, as Jesus is now grown up. And we have a choice to make. Do I just carry on as I am? Or do I allow these teachings of Jesus to shape the rest of my story? I want to end with an exercise in the imagination. I want us to think for a moment, very briefly and quickly, what is life like for us at the moment? What are the, what's, what are the things that are going on? Among our friends, among our families, are there big questions that we need to ask? Are there matters about our faith that are troubling us? And just with all that reality within us, I want to invite you, if you're comfortable with this, to close your eyes and try to imagine yourself standing on the banks of the River Jordan where John is baptising people. And you can look around. You'll see Jews. You'll see Roman soldiers. You'll see people from other nations, all watching, all curious. Maybe some are chatting, maybe some are listening. But where do you put yourself in that crowd? And I want you to look towards John and follow his gaze. Because he can see a man in his early 30s coming towards him. Just take a moment to have a look at John's face and the face of the other man. Do they recognise each other? Are words spoken? And now hear the splash of the water man goes under and he is brought up and now he gazes up to the sky what do you see or hear what do you want to do now is there something you want to say somewhere you want to be and now 
I'd like to invite you to refocus your imagination. You are on the top of a hill. You're with Peter, James, John, Thomas and Andrew and other close friends of Jesus. And you've been chatting about how things are, what life's like for you, what's been going on. And Jesus comes among you. You know it's him. You recognise his face, even though it is marred by the wounds of the crown of thorns. You know these are his hands, though they are scarred by nails. And you look into his face and he looks into you, yours. And his eyes gaze into your eyes and see right to the depths of your soul, your very being. What does he say to you? What words do you hear? now you have a choice to make. You come back down the mountain, back to the everyday, but what will you do next? We remain seated to sing the prayer, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me.
prayer. <coughs> we are gathered this morning as a company of people who are committed to be followers of Jesus and to support each other in that following. And so as we pray, we bring before God the sense of commitment that each of us in this room has experienced. Having embraced the life of faith, we may have been baptised by immersion, or we may have been confirmed, confirmed our earlier baptism as an infant, or if our background is from a tradition which does not practise baptism, we may have given public affirmation to our commitment to the journey of faith in community. We may be, we probably are, a complex mixture of faith and doubt. In a moment of silence, let us recall now our own experience of the stages in our life when we, like Jesus, said, yes, I will follow that path and not the other. And let us also bring before God the sense of call that each of us in this room has experienced. A call to live the life of Jesus in a myriad of ways which reflect our individual gifts and personalities. Through the daily life and work in which we find ourselves, through the daily mission and service of our life together in this community of faith that we know as Hillhead Baptist Church always aspiring to encourage and not discourage, always aspiring to build up and not to put down, always aspiring to be a follower of Jesus who charged us to go into all the world and be the gospel. And so in a moment of silence, let us reflect on how we have measured up to these aspirations during this past week. As usual in our prayers, we take the thoughts of BMS World Mission for each Sunday. And today, of course, as we all know, is Holocaust, Holocaust Memorial Day. And this is the main focus in today's prayer diary for BMS. This day remembers the horror and the suffering of the genocide perpetrated by the Nazi regime who murdered six million European Jews and hundreds of thousands of gypsies, communists and sexual minorities. One of the most painful realities for European Christians to deal with is the past complicity of many Christians and churches in the Nazis' attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. 
We visit the past to protect the future. We cannot rest nor cease in prayer for peace. Genocide rears its head again and again in our modern world. And we think of Armenia, of Cambodia, of Rwanda, of Darfur. To be a hope for the future, we must continually visit the past and confront the present. God of justice and peace, do not let us permit the images to fade from our mind. Let them stir our souls to constant action. And for this Sunday, the Baptist Union of Scotland asks us to remember Nick Blair, who is chaplain to Merchison Castle School, and for the Baptist churches in Ayr, in Bearsden, which of course is one of Hillhead's daughter churches, and in Bells Hill. And today in our community here at Hillhead, we remember Holly and George. We remember the stresses and strains of working in hospital and hospice and the effect that that can have on one's own health. And for Sheila, who's feeling a bit stir-crazy just now, with her very active life being a little restricted for the moment through injury. Loving God, we have listened again to the stories of Jesus' baptism and his commission to us all. May those who do not know you hear your call. May those who knew you once come to know you again. And may those who long to know you better receive encouragement and insight for the journey. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. And we continue in our prayers in the giving of an offering. Lamb of God, who gives us your peace, 
we offer you these gifts of our money and also the gifts of our very selves that all may be employed to speak and to be your good news in the world of which we are but a very tiny part. Amen. Lord, thy church on earth is seeking thy renewal from above. If we're able, we stand as we sing. From where we are to where you call us, lead us on, loving God, to live and to work, to your praise and glory, now and forever. <laughs> 